0: Would you take your Bibles and turn, please, to Psalm 110, Psalm 110. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the uh, front of the bulletin, and I'd encourage you to uh, take the bulletin in hand and follow along as we read and comment on this text. I understand that uh, Saturday Night Live has a new character, uh, actually a caricature, I, I have not yet seen her because I can't stay awake that, that late, but uh, she's called Church Lady. And uh, she's sort of the archetypically over-churched person whose favorite saying is, the devil made me do it. Now, uh, sometimes that's nothing more than a cop-out. We don't want to accept responsibility for something that we've done. But uh, there's, a, there's a note of truth, a solid note of truth. In that statement because the devil does make us at times do things, do his will. Uh, Paul uh, even puts it that way. He says some are ensnared, captured by Satan to do his will. And uh, sometimes people act like the devil because the devil really is the one who is behind their actions. Now, one of the truths that I've tried to get across to you in these psalms is that that we need to see beyond the scene. There's a level of reality that we may not even be aware of, which is just as real as this, uh, this podium. And that's the unseen world of spiritual happenings. And in that world, there are devilish, murderous, uh, demonic, fiendish personalities that are out to undo what God is doing in your life. God is their enemy. And as we saw last week, sometimes we get caught in between Satan's assaults upon God. We take the shots that are intended uh, for him. Other times, Satan tries to subvert in our own lives what God is doing. And in those times, we need someone like Melchizedek to come and rescue us. Now, you may ask, who in the world is Melchizedek? That sounds like a new uh, middle linebacker for uh, BSU Broncos. No, Melchizedek was a king. And his name... Uh, comes up in Psalm 110. Now let's look at the psalm. Psalm 110. Uh, this is, when you first read this psalm, it, it seems uh, like a very unremarkable psalm. Uh, you, you might think it difficult to find something meaningful in this psalm. But it's a psalm that's mined over and over again by the New Testament writers. They thought it was very important. Uh, I get the impression that uh, they're like a, uh, an old miner who, who finds a rich vein of ore, almost solid gold, and they can just hardly uh, keep from swinging their pick because every, every swing of the pick produces something of, of value. And they quote this psalm um, over and over again. Now, this is uh, one of the so-called royal psalms. All uh, commentators on the Psalter will agree that this is a royal psalm. That is, it has to do with the king, and ultimately with king, to king with King Jesus. Now, as you know, I feel that all the psalms are royal psalms. They were either written by the king or for the king, put into his mouth so that he could lead the, the congregation in worship. And almost all of them, ultimately in, the New, ultimately in the New Testament, find their fulfillment in Jesus. So that when we read these royal psalms, we need to understand that this psalm is talking about our Lord Jesus. Now, uh, David was a prophet. A prophet uh, is a Jew who received direct revelation. God spoke to him mouth-to-mouth is the idiom that's used. He didn't, uh, he didn't get this information in a book. God revealed truth directly to him, and he predicted the future with 100% accuracy. David uh, fulfills all of the criteria. He was a prophet. And the interesting thing about this psalm is that David, writing in 1000 B.C., looking down through history and addressing himself to the Lord Jesus. He's talking about his king, as we'll see. Now that's unusual. That's what makes this psalm unusual. This psalm is not addressed to the king. It's not the king speaking about himself. This is King David speaking of his Messiah. Now he knew he knew the promise that was given to Eve when Adam and Eve sinned. God promised this first couple that Eve would someday, one of her seed, one of her descendants, would save the world. And then that promise is restated to Abraham, and we know from that promise that he would be a Jew, he would be an Israelite. And then as the line of promise continues, he was to come through the tribe of Judah, and then through the family of David, he would be one of David's descendants. So that uh, any of the kings of Judah, who were David's descendants, knew that they were just holding down the job of king until the king, capital K, came. And David understood that. And uh, he addresses this psalm as a prophet to his Messiah. Now, let's uh, let's look at, at, at the psalm. There are actually two oracles, two prophecies. One is uh, found in verse 1. The other is in verse 4. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, you'll notice in almost all translations, and I assume your translation has this, uh, this nuance, that the first Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second Lord is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Now, that's significant because when the word Lord is in uppercase, when it's all capitalized, it refers to Yahweh, to Israel's God. When it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, It's just the word for master, my master, my superior, that sort of thing. Now, David, what David is saying is that Yahweh, Israel's God, Jehovah, has spoken to me, and I'm speaking to my master. Now, that's uh, remarkable. Who is David's master? David was the king, and at that time in history, uh, one of the most powerful kings in, in, in the Middle East. Who is he speaking to? Well, Jesus raised that question. Uh, It was in that day when everyone was asking him questions and trying to target. They were targeting him, trying to nail him to the wall. The Herodians came and asked the question about paying taxes and the Sadducees came and asked the question about the resurrection and the Pharisees wanted to know about divorce and this sort of thing went on and on and on through the day until our Lord turned the tables on them. He was so adept at that. And uh, he... He said to the crowd, the crowd was gathered listening to him, and he said said to them, Now, uh, let's think for a moment about Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said, David's son. Right, he's the descendant of David. Why then did David say, and then he quoted Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, in, in, in the Eastern world, the Son was always the inferior. The Father was greater than the Son. But in this case, David speaks to his Son and he calls him, Sir. You see that? He calls him, My Master. And they didn't have any answer for that. They couldn't understand it. And of course, what Jesus was saying is that David recognized that his Son was greater than he, he was his King, capital K, his Lord. His master. So we understand that this psalm is addressed to the King, our Lord Jesus. The Lord says to our Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, as, I, as I said, the, the apostles uh, spell out the implications of that psalm as it relates to Jesus or that statement as it relates relates to Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter's sermon after Pentecost is based in part on, on this statement in verse 1. And the point that he makes is that Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand. He's ascended. He was resurrected. God put his stamp of approval on what Jesus did and he was exalted and now he has the authority of the King. He is seated at the right hand of God. And Peter refers that this text directly to Jesus. It is fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Hebrews 1 quotes this verse, verse 1, to demonstrate that Jesus is higher than the angels. He's greater than the angels. The angels are serving, he says. They're always being sent forth from God's throne to serve those that are the heirs of salvation. On the other hand, Jesus is sitting down. He sins. He doesn't serve in the, in the way that the angels do. He has the authority of the Father to send angels. So he's the king, you see. And then a bit later in Hebrews, in chapter 10, uh, he's contrasting Jesus' ministry as a priest with the high priest. And he describes the high priest always serving. They don't don't have a chance to sit down. There's no chair in the tabernacle. There's no chair in the temple. They're always serving. Jesus, on the other hand, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Paul in Romans 8 describes our Lord seated at the right hand of God. This is a direct quote from this passage always making intercession for us. So numerous times the New Testament authors spell out the significance of this passage. The the old readers the Old Testament readers had to think it out. They didn't understand the implications of this statement. We don't have to. It's spelled out for us by the Apostles. As C.S. Lewis would say or as the children would say in the Narnia Tales, he's the king. I tell you. He's seated in authority at the right hand of God. That's the implication that we draw from this, uh, from verse 1. Now, uh, this is interesting because David begins to address himself to his Messiah. He's already delivered the oracle. He received this revelation from God. He has spoken it a thousand years into the future to the Lord Jesus, his Messiah. And now he begins to instruct his Lord. He, he, he encourages him. With the implication drawn from his authority, uh, that you have in verses two and three, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Uh, and then raid in holy majesty, or arrayed in the beauty of holiness, refers uh, to the Lord, not to those, not to the troops. It would appear that way in the text, but it goes back to. The Lord himself, the Lord arrayed in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the dawn, that is, from the birthplace of the dawn. Youths will come to you like the dew. Uh, If you have a new international version version, uh, of the Bible, the last line of verse 3 is, you will receive the dew of your youth. The footnote reads, your young men will come to you like the dew. I take the footnote as the better reading. It's a description of, of people being gathered to the Lord suddenly and silently like the dew. It's a wonderful picture. You wake up in the morning, there's dew all over the grass. How did it get there? You didn't hear it falling in the middle of the night. There's, a, there's some force at work, some dynamic at work that, that, that produces the dew, quietly, silently, and suddenly, in the, uh, uh, just before dawn. And uh, that's the process, he says, by which people, or that's descriptive of the process, by which people are drawn to the beauty Of the king who's to come. That's his point. He's arrayed in beauty. He is beautiful. As we've said over and over again. He is beautiful. And uh, as we've tried to see. One aspect of his beauty. Is his compassion for people. Uh, You see his beauty in the people that he tolerated. Uh, I was thinking this past week of Zacchaeus. The little short guy who had to climb up in the tree to see Jesus. Jesus made his way in, into town. You know, and The motorcade was out to meet him. The mayor, the city council, everyone, you know, all the chief priests, they're all out to meet him. And the Lord is making his way through town. This little sawed-off guy had such a hunger to see Jesus. Couldn't see over the top of the crowd. So he climbs up the tree, and he's up in the top of the tree. And Jesus overlooks the heads of, of state, and he sees this little guy in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down here. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight because he loved little guys like you and me, the people that are overlooked and unnoticed and they never do anything very significant in life. They just kind of trudge along. Most people aren't even aware that they're there, but but our Lord sees them and he loves them and he wants to fellowship with them. And you you think of the thief on the cross. I read this past week a statement about that man. that caught my attention. Someone said, that man never even said grace. Much less it was worthy of it. Uh, there is an emergency. Daniel and Luann Gonzalez are needed in room four. This, this man is crucified uh, with our Lord. Uh, we don't know much about his past, except he was a crook. He apparently had no interest in spiritual things, he'd never darkened the door of the synagogue. And, uh, and and he's, he's dying for his sins, for his crime. He had done something that was worthy of capital punishment. And, and he looked at our Lord, and he listened to his words, his gracious words to the people at the foot of the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and just the way he handled himself in that situation, his love and compassion for the people around, for his mother uh, looking out for her interests. And uh, he said... To the, he saw the beauty of our Lord, and he said to him, When you get to heaven, put in a good word for me. And the Lord said, Consider it done. This day you'll be with me in paradise. I, I call that crazy grace. We sing about amazing grace, but to me it's crazy grace because it's illogical. Totally illogical. That Jesus loves every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes along who, who just have a hunger for him. That's all he wants. That's all he needs. It's what he loves to see. And he rushes to meet, meet their need. He's the Savior of the of the person who has demeaned himself, who's dirtied up his life, who's trashed his life. He, he just loves to reach out to people like that. And when you see that kind of beauty, you are attracted to him. Like G. Gordon Liddy said about Colson, you know, if, if he would run over his grandmother for, G- for uh, Nixon, think of what he would do for Jesus. Well, when you see that kind of character in Jesus, you're, you're drawn to him. You're attracted to him. It's the goodness of, of, of God that draws people to repentance. It's that grace and love and mercy that they see extended to them in their state right where they are. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Not drag them, but draw them. You see, that's what makes his yoke so easy. He's so gracious. He's so loving. And this description of him is so apt. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. They will lay down their lives for him. Carolyn often says of uh, women that are involved in Bible study fellowship, uh, those women will will put their lives down for Jesus' sake there's something about that ministry that focuses uh, their eyes on the Lord and they come to love him and they'll do anything for them and and that's what this psalm describes your troops will be willing free will offerings they will present their bodies a living sacrifice because of the mercy of God they'll be willing to die on the day of battle because you are arrayed in beauty from the womb of the the dawn. Therefore, your young men and women will come to you like the dew. There's a silent process going on. It draws people to the Lord because of His beauty. Now, that's the first oracle which uh, David addresses to his Lord. The second is in verses 4 through 7. The Lord is sworn and will not change His mind. He doesn't take His word back when He gives it. It's good. Not only is He good, His word is good. You are a priest forever in the manner of Melchizedek. That's actually what, what the, how the phrase reads. In the manner or like Melchizedek. Now, you'll notice the first oracle has to do with his kingship. He's a king. The second oracle has to do with his priesthood. He's a priest, and he's a priest forever. Underscore, underscore that about four or five times. Forever, that's the point, like Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Who 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 is this this person that mystifies so many so many uh, students of Scripture? Well, uh, the only place he occurs historically uh, is uh, after Abraham was returning from his battle with the with the four Babylonian kings, and that story is told in Genesis fourteen. Will you turn there with me, please? Because I'd like for you to see that account. Uh, here's what happened. Let me me sketch you in the first part of the of the passage for you, uh, the story for you. Uh, Lot, his nephew, had gone down to Sodom to live. There were four kings from the east, from Babylon, who, uh, who invaded the area around the Salt Sea, around the Dead Sea, and took Lot and his family captive. It was a punitive raid because the Five kings around the Dead Sea, had uh, they had revolted against the, their Babylonian overlords. And these four kings that came to do battle with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Ottoman and, and the other cities there were uh, they were powerful kings. So, a couple of them we think we can identify. One, Amraphel, was Hammurabi, whose, whose code has made him famous, Hammurabi's code. The other is a man named Tudaliah, who was a great Hittite king during this period and uh, his name occurs on inscriptions he he was uh, uh, he was a mighty powerful king so these men were were, they were quite a threat and they came down to the Dead Sea and they swept uh, the Sodomites away and they took Lot his family and a number of other prisoners of war from from uh, Sodom and Abraham went after Lot because it was his nephew he was concerned and under cover of darkness he raided their camp, and he was able to make enough noise that they were frightened and routed in the darkness. in in, in that time night was in that period of time night was uh, the time to attack because they were afraid of things that go bump in the dark and and they they came under cover of darkness and routed the Babylonians and they fled for their lives up to Damascus and uh, uh, Abraham and his three hundred eighteen servants uh, just a very small task force, just a just small group, they gathered up Lot, all of his relatives took him back to Sodom. They were on their way back to Sodom, and they were traveling along the ridge, the spine that divides the land of Palestine, they were making their way down the mountaintops, and they came down through the Kidron Valley on their way to Hebron, and uh, something happened. Now, I should tell you Abram's state of mind at this point. Abram was scared out of his wits. We know that because the first verse of chapter 15, Genesis 15, reads, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, Stop being afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. He was scared. And let me tell you why he was scared. And the best way I can... uh, I can convey this idea, is to use an illustration. This is the one I used with the men Wednesday morning. Suppose there's a motorcycle gang that live in a house down the street from you, and they break into your house and steal your son's stereo. And so you go to his rescue, and under cover of darkness, you slip into their house, and you bang a couple of frying pans uh, together and blow a police whistle and, and frighten them, and they all run out the front door or the back door, And you grab the stereo, and you run back home, and suddenly it dawns on you what you've done. And you know there's going to be a punitive raid on your house uh, as soon as they get back and pull themselves together. That's exactly what Abraham was feeling. He was frightened. What have I done? He said, what craziness made me do this? And not only that, he was tired, and you always feel worse when you're tired. You feel impotent, and uh, you... You feel you don't have the resources to handle the situation. He had Lot, all Lot's family, had all the other prisoners of war from Sodom, women, little children. The little children were bawling. They had anything to eat for for a day. They were all tired. They had walked almost from Damascus, which was uh, 60, 70 miles from where they were. They were worn out, frightened. They didn't know where to turn. And they're making their way down through the Kidron Valley. Now, this is what happened. Verse 17 of Genesis 14. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him. that's is the head of this federation that came from Babylon. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. Shava, is uh, just the Hebrew word for level, in a level valley. Now, this is an old story, so Moses has to update it for those who lived in his time. The king's valley. Ah, we know where that is. That's just below the city of Jerusalem. Modern Jerusalem. That's what we call the Kidron Valley today. This deep cleft. Mount Zion over to the west. Valley down below. Mount of Olives on the east. He's making his way down that brook. Then Melchizedek. King of Salem. That's the ancient uh, name of Jerusalem. Uh, Yerushalom. Uh, City of peace. Well, this is just the last part of that uh, of that uh, that name. Uh, Salem, king of Salem or Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He fed Abraham and his men and all these people. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And as we read on into the text, it's the same God that Abraham worshiped because in verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I am raised my hand to Yahweh. God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, uses the same terminology that Melchizedek uses. And here's a Canaan, a Canaanite priest, who knew God, and he comes tumbling down out of Salem, out of Jerusalem, and he gives Abraham bread and wine. He gives him the simple necessities of life, and he blesses Abram, saying, "Blessed be Abram by God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, Uh, and blessed be God, most high, who delivered your enemies." Into your hand. The you know, man's a monotheist. Not only that, he, he worships the same God that Abraham worships, and he he comes to, to to rescue Abram and remind him of God's resources. He enriches him spiritually and he enriches him physically. He gives him bread and wine. Now, David was uh, David lived in Salem. He lived in Jerusalem and he he was meditating on this this passage. He, he had Genesis 14 in front of him. He was meditating on this passage one day. And it dawned on him that his Lord, who was yet to come, would would come tumbling down the slopes of Mount Zion someday to bring salvation. That that his Lord, his Messiah, was a king-priest. Here's this beautiful blending of righteousness and peace, of uh, religion and the state, so to speak. You in know, in our, the, the those that constructed our Constitution were very wise in making this division between church and state because there's no king who is righteous enough to handle that kind of, that kind of, uh, that kind of link. Uh, they will either use religion or corrupt it, and the same is true of the church. The church will either use or corrupt the state. But here's someone who is who's holy, who's good, who's righteous, who's without sin. He's a perfect blend of a king who rules... And a a, a priest who ministers to people, who really cares about them, and who's compassionate. And David said, Messiah is just like Melchizedek. He's a king priest, like the fellow that Abram ran into. I don't think this Melchizedek is what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God or an appearance of Jesus before the fact. He was a Canaanite, he was a man. But David says, My Lord is like Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, was reading Psalm 110 one day, and he picked up David's statement, and he thought, Now, I wonder why David thought that Jesus is like Melchizedek. And he started pondering that question. And if you want to know what, what conclusion he came to, turn to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, if you have an NIV, it's uh, page 1580, maybe a little difficult to find, right after James, or right before James, chapter 7, this Melchizedek, well, let me me begin reading with 620, where Jesus who went before us has entered on, on our behalf, he has become a high priest forever like Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abram, returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, uh, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, he is not saying that Melchizedek didn't have a mother or father. He was a human being. He had to have a mother or father. He's saying this man appeared out of nowhere and he disappeared. And we don't, you know, who, who is this masked man? You know, he appears and he disappears. And the writer of Hebrews, in thinking this thing through, comes to some startling conclusions. He said, well, in the first place, this man is king of Salem. And Salem means peace. Shalom, the Jews say. Peace. So he's the king who brings peace. Not only peace with God, but inner peace. And he's the king of righteousness because his name, Melech Tzedek in Hebrew, king of righteousness, is signifies a righteous king. He's a righteous king. He not only sets things right between you and God, but he begins to make you right. He begins to change your character. Oh, it's just like Jesus. And secondly, he came out of Zion. Uh, Remember in verse 2, he refers to the fact that God would extend his mighty scepter from Zion. Zion's a little hill. If you go to Jerusalem today, they'll point out a hill and say, that's Zion. Actually, they've got the wrong hill. Zion was the city of David. It was this little peninsula that extends to the south of, uh, of where the Temple Mound is today, where the Dome of the Rock is. That, that's, that's Zion. That's a, that's a place that had all kinds of memories for Jews. That, that's the spot uh, very close to where Abraham offered up Isaac. Uh, remember the story? Abraham's on his way up that hill, had his boy Isaac with him, God had told him to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac says, Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, here's the knife, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God, he'll see to it. He'll provide the sacrifice. And we got to the top of the hill. As you know, the boy didn't have to die. There was a substitute, an animal was substituted. And when it was all over, Abraham pointed out that this is simply symbolic of something that will happen on this hill. God will see to it. That a sacrifice is provided. And that's the hill up puts Jesus trudged with the cross on his back. And that's where he was sacrificed for the sins of the world. God provided. And that mountain was called Moriah. Yahweh will see to it. Will provide. That's Zion. Golgotha. Both the uh, both uh, places that are pointed out today. Doesn't make any difference which one you, you choose. Both of them are on a spur of Mount Zion a very famous place it's where Abraham offered Isaac it's where Melchizedek lived that's where Jesus was crucified and and if you go there today you can see Mount Zion but when you get into the New Testament this this hill this physical hill is translated into the heavenly Jerusalem Paul says in Galatians 5 and Hebrews 12 says the same thing that you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship we have a much better deal We have a heavenly city. Our Lord reigns today in Mount Zion. And He comes tumbling off of that hill just as Melchizedek came tumbling off of Mount Zion to feed us and nurture us and provide for us and give us whatever we need. He provides the simple necessities of life. So when you walk through the dark valley of the shadow of death, when you're fearful, when you're full of doubt, when you're despairing, when you're frightened out of your wits, Melchizedek comes to the rescue. Oh, not the man that lived uh, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. But our Lord Jesus comes down off of Zion. And he gives you bread and wine. He protects you. He provides just what you need. Whatever it is, he meets that necessity of life. And that's why David can say, as he looks down through history... Thousand years. You're a priest forever. Just like Melchizedek. Forever. That's the point. Forever. You know, the problem with priests and other people that we go to for help is that they die off or they move off. I was talking to someone last week and they were just desolate because their grandmother died. And the reason they were they, they, they were uh, Feeling so lonely is because they were raised by their grandmother, and uh, uh, they used to go to this person for counsel and help, and now she she's gone, and there's no one to turn to. You know, or, or your psychiatrist is too busy, can't see you for three weeks, or your friend moves to California. But but the Lord's always there. He's a priest forever, forever. And whatever you need, whenever you need it, he comes tumbling down off of that mountain to feed you bread and wine—the simple necessities of, of life. Uh, Carolyn has a purse we call Wonder Purse. Uh, it's like C.S. Lewis's vision of heaven. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It has everything. If I ask for a Serbo-Croatian dictionary, she says it's in the left-hand corner down there. It's incredible. It, it, we were out together not too long ago, and, and I wanted some aspirin for my bum knee, and she said, ah, It's in Wonderpurse. And I went and looked at Wonderpurse. There was only one aspirin. The help I needed wasn't there. And that, that's the problem. with all forms of human help. It'll always let you down the end, but the Lord never will. He's a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews says you you can come boldly to him because he cares. He's gone through everything you've gone through. He's never put off by your weakness, your failure. The fact that you've dirtied or demeaned your life that does not put him off. He's compassionate and understanding and wants you to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. And, And in times of desperate need, he's the one who comes to get us and to save us, just like Melchizedek. Now, uh, David does what he does with the first oracle. He does this with the second oracle. He elaborates upon it. The Lord is at your right hand. You'll notice the reversal of roles. It was an interesting thing. It struck me as I read through the psalm this time that in the first oracle, Jesus is at Yahweh's right hand. In verse 5, Yahweh is at Jesus's right. Jesus' right hand. He's there to, to strengthen him. The Lord is at your right hand. He, that is Yahweh, will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crush the head of the whole earth. It's interesting, the Hebrew text just says head, and, and grammarians would have to struggle with that. Hebrew scholars in the Old Testament era would have to struggle. It doesn't make much sense. As he will crush the head of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's a nice touch. It's, uh, you remember Gideon, the story of Gideon, how his men were pursuing the enemy, and they stopped by the brook, and they just splashed water up on their face and lapped a few, a uh, little bit of water out of their hand and continued the route. He, he's like that. He never gives up, stops, refreshes himself, just kind of a note, of, sort of a human note. God's like that. He never stops. He just, just keeps pursuing your enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, the enemies were the enemies of Israel, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Canaanites, Philistines, people like that. In the New Testament, the enemy is a spiritual enemy. It's not, it's not the USSR. It's not Afghanistan. It's not Cuba. It's not Nicaragua. Not, not in the New Testament. The real enemies that we face are the spiritual enemies, the enemies behind the scenes. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against principalities and powers against the rulers of darkness and high places Places. see that's the problem that's why it's so important to see things as they really are that's why we have, to, we have to be realists the ultimate realist sees that the person who's giving us grief is not the problem he's been victimized that's why Jesus could say on the cross father forgive them I don't know what they're doing because they were victimized by the evil one. That's why Paul says we should always be patient, shouldn't be argumentative with those that oppose us, because they've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's the spirit of this age, Satan, the old uh, the old the old serpent, who is being behind all the efforts to undo what, what God is doing. It's the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He said, that's the real problem, is that people around us are victimized. And we need to see beyond the person to the dynamic, the force, the personality that, that's, that is behind. And, and what, what we need to do is not get in our Lord's way. But our problem is that we try to deal with the problem friendly, we think that words and Manipulation and managing and working things out noodling it through thinking it out you know, and we, we're, we're going to make things happen the way they ought to happen instead of counting on the one like Melchizedek to go to war for us to do battle for us and the way we do that is through prayer the highest expression of faith is prayer and we run into one of these situations that just seem impossible That's the time to remind ourselves that the Lord is our protector and just to say, Lord, you go to battle for me. You deal with this situation. You take care of me. And our Lord comes tumbling down off of Zion and he gives us bread and wine and he nourishes us and he nurtures us and he cares for us and then he goes to battle for us. He does that because he loves us, you see. It's that view of reality that changes the way we live. I've, I've said that a number of times as we've looked at these psalms. Our perception of reality determines our behavior. And that's the view of reality we got to have. That's what's ultimately real, is that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. A woman I know just this past week was awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call it was about 12 o'clock and she came out of deep sleep to answer the phone and the voice on the phone said "Uh, we're so and so we live down the street we just looked in your backyard and uh, there are two men out there and one of them has a baseball bat and I thought thought you'd want to know and she said thank you and hung up and then she woke up her husband and she said do you know what that person just said and he said no. and she told him and he got up and peeked through the windows and looked around the house and went out in the backyard checked things out nobody there came back and he said you know I think that was a prank phone call that's all it was someone trying to terrorize you he went back to sleep she couldn't sleep the rest of the night because her perception of reality was that there's someone out there who was going to get her and it frightened her and see life is like that if we really think that, that uh, somebody's going to get us, we're going to be frightened all the time. But if we understand that there is really nothing that our Lord cannot cope with out there, He is the King. He, he put down principalities and powers uh, in His death on the cross. Even demonic forces are subject to Him. They don't get away with anything without His permission. And ultimately, He's going to deal with them so that they are never again a threat to us. When He comes back, He's going to put all principalities and powers in their place. That's the view of reality we've got to have. He comes to rescue us. He comes to provide what we need. And He comes to fight our, our battles for us. now I want to conclude. There's some other things I wanted to say, but I, I, I can't. I don't have time. But I want to conclude with a hymn that we all love. And uh, I want to read it to you because I think it says again what, what this psalm says. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Be thou forever near me, my Master, my Lord, and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Oh, let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. See, that's the, that's the problem we have to realize that the Lord is even nearer to us than the world and its assaults upon us. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me, around me, and within doubt, despair, fear, depression, worry. Those are the enemies within that, that are generated by the father of lies. My foes are ever near me, around me, and within. But Jesus, draw thou nearer, and shield my soul from sin. Here comes Melchizedek, down the side of the hill, to minister to our needs. Oh Jesus, thou hast promised to all who follow thee, that where thou art in glory, there shall thy servant be. Remember what I said last week? Our Lord wants us to be with him forever. That's what he longs for. It's what he prayed for in his high priestly prayer. I pray that they'll be with me forever. He loves us like that. That where thou art in glory, there shall thy servant be. And Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Oh, give me grace to follow my master and my friend. Let's pray. Let's stand together, shall we? <clears throat> Father, what can we say except to thank you again for this great reminder of your love for us, your grace that's extended to us, your power that transcends any human or inhuman power. We thank you for that goodness. And we we want to grasp this truth as we've never grasped it before. Help us to realize that you're like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace who comes from the heavenly city to deliver us, to feed us, provide what we need, and to fight for us. We thank you for this insight, this understanding. And uh, we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.